and draw your attention this morning back to Ephesians 2. We will read verse 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we bow before you, Lord, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, for thanksgiving for this great salvation, this salvation by grace through faith. Lord, that it is not in any way, shape, or form by our merit, by our works, but by your complete and sovereign grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone, to your glory alone. Lord, open up your word this morning to us. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enliven our hearts, open our our minds and open our eyes and open our ears that we might hear from you this morning. And we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we, I think all of us could agree, we as human beings are seriously flawed. Are we not? Seriously flawed. We can see from our text here in Ephesians, as we've begun going over Ephesians for several weeks now, uh, we can see this, can we not? Uh, there's, there's always, always will be a deficiency, even in those whom the Lord has sovereignly redeemed and justified. There will always be a deficiency until that time when Christ comes again and brings us to glory with Him to be glorified. The end of salvation, the completeness, the, 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 the consummation of salvation. Until that time, we will always be dealing with some of these issues. At that time when He comes, John tells us that, uh, beloved, we are God's children now. It's a reality now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And then He goes on to say that everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. This hope is a grounded hope. We've talked about this some, I think, in our, in our times on Sunday afternoons, or maybe it's when we get together and just are discussing the things of the Lord. We've talked about this. This hope is a grounded hope. This, this is grounded in truth. It's, it's a longing and looking to a reality which has not been fully realized, but nevertheless is based upon a truth, the truth of God's Word. 
And one of these truths that we have been led to know, which the Apostle Paul takes great pains to establish to us, here in Ephesians and elsewhere in his writings, in actuality, the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament, speaks to us of this, that salvation is by grace alone. It's by grace. It has nothing to do with ourselves or our working. It's truly a gift, and that truth that it's grace is grounded just upon more truth that we find in Scripture. Truth that the Apostle has been laying out for us in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, grounded in truths and the great doctrines of Scripture. Election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, preservation. All these grand truths just support this truth that salvation is by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. We'll refrain from going over each one of those. We've done this in our text as we've looked at it from Ephesians 1 and 2. But going back to what John says that we quoted just a minute ago, there is more to come. There is a reality that exists now being God's children. Yet there is a reality that still is yet to come in the future. It, isn't it amazing how Scripture, John and, and Paul here in Ephesians, can be so complementary to one another? This is a truth that you will only find in Scripture. Scripture. Something that just completely is and maintains its coherency as truth. All written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but written by different men who are coherent in their understanding because the understanding comes from without. It comes from God. It comes from the Spirit. But in chapter 1, he tells us, that we've received this inheritance. This is much like what John says. There's, there's more yet to come, right? He says that we have been given. He says that we have obtained an inheritance, yet we're given the Spirit as the guarantee of that inheritance. So we have an inheritance now, but there's more yet to come. And it's in the working of God, and more particularly the triune God, which allows us to have this hope of what is to come, is it not? We looked last week from Scripture that salvation is of, of God, of His grace, not of works, lest man should boast. One of the reasons that I may have a hope, a grounded hope, in this salvation, in what is to come, is that it is not of me. That is a great truth and groundedness of my hope. A foundation for my hope is that it's not of me. If I had to achieve, if I had to work, if I had to merit, or if I had to do something in particular, or a certain amount of things to achieve this salvation, number one, it wouldn't be a gift, but number two, how easily then could I lose that salvation? You can kind of see why there are those who believe that they obtained salvation by their works, that they might also lose it. But this is not a truth that we find in Scripture. <coughs> but thanks to God, 
we learn from Scripture, Scripture as a whole, that it is His work. And He is the one who guarantees the completion of that work. Philippians, Paul tells us this in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this. So I'm, I'm confident of this. This is not a speculation that I have. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a sure thing. This is why we have hope. But here is one of the great struggles in the Christian life. Until that work is complete, we must contend with the flesh. That which the Puritans often referred to as the remainders of indwelling sin. As we deal with these things, we often find that we are a people redeemed, justified, adopted, all these things, yes, we are these things. But also we're a people who deal with the remainders of this, these indwelling sins and are dealing with sin and struggling to understand and to comprehend the depth of the truths that we find in Scripture. One of the issues that we often deal with is the issue that I would call polarity. We are not people of balance. We're not. We have things that occur around us in our society or even with the within the scope of the professing church that often cause us to err, to swing so far in one direction, to take an extreme or a polar position in opposition to that which is error and truly is error. But sometimes we, out of fear that we might be in agreement with that, we just swing so far in the opposite direction. As an example of this, I think this is what has happened as a result of the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement in America and throughout the world. We, we are so defensive against the errors of that system that we have shied away from teaching and preaching regarding the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's to our error that we do that. Out of fear that we might sound like a charismatic. Another example, I believe, is found in our text in Ephesians 2.10, which deals with what we, where we find ourselves this morning. Paul addresses good works. The church has become almost silent in large part out of fear that something might be misconstrued about what is being declared. So the church leaves it to be debated among pastors with other pastors around a table somewhere or in seminary education. out of fear that we might be looked at as antinomian or legalists. Yet Paul, he doesn't address this to a group of pastors studying that these would-be pastors somewhere. Paul is not addressing them. He's addressing the church here in Ephesus, the body of Christ. This is who he's addressing. He's writing a letter to the church to be read in church, in worship, to all who are in attendance. And he doesn't shy away from teaching about good works. 
but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God breathed. He puts good works in their proper place. So let's look at our text here this morning and pray that the Lord gives us discernment and wisdom to look at these things, to look at them rightly, and to reveal to us through the text, through the inspired Word of God, what it is that we would be led to see here. Well, Paul, in the beginning of verse 10 of Ephesians 2, tells us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He calls us back to the place where he again declares that this is God's work. We are His workmanship. This is God's work. It's all together of Him. He is the craftsman. He is the giver of life to those who we read earlier are dead in trespasses and sins, earlier in our study in Ephesians. Hendrickson says and translates this way, William Hendrickson, he says that we are His handiwork. We are His handiwork. To Him, to God, we owe our entire spiritual as well as physical being. 100% to God do we owe everything that we are. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. That says a lot right there. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His people. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We're His. He made us. We have been born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Do you remember that? John 3, 6-7. That which is born of the flesh is what? It's flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, he said to Nicodemus, this great teacher. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. This birth, Christ says, is not of our flesh. It is not possible that this birth come from that which is fleshly. That which is subject to the fall. That which is subject to sin. A creation. A work must be done from without. From that which is not subject to sin. That's where this new birth, that's where this you must be born again must come from. It's not inherent in the flesh. If our first birth would have been good enough, there would be no need for a second birth. You must be born again. And since this work must come from without, there is only one source for this. We must be born and created anew in Christ Jesus. Created in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I believe we mentioned this in a prior message, but this, this language that Paul uses here, we are his workmanship. This, this is language that makes me think of a great artist. 
a craftsman or a sculptor. The thing which is made did not make itself. We look around everything. This amazes me. I listen to a guy every once in a while that goes every Wednesday to a university. And he's talking to these kids at these universities. And he, they, they don't believe that there's a creator. And he'll say to them, do you see this bench over here? Do you see this bench? Did someone make that bench? Well, yes. He'll, t- he'll turn them around and show them one of the buildings that is constructed on the university campuses. And he'll say, was there a designer? Was there an architect? Was there a builder for this? Well, yes. Look around you. Look at the heavens. Look at the earth. Look at the trees. Look at you and the complexity of, of who you are as a human being. And you're telling me that there's not a creator? These things did not make themselves the, this, that the artists makes. If it was a canvas, it would remain a canvas. It was, if it was a stick of wood, it would remain a stick of wood. If it was a lump of clay, it's going to remain a lump of clay until something outside of it does a work. Do you understand this? That the artist must take the canvas and apply something to it. He must paint it, and then it becomes something totally different. The craftsman must take that piece of wood and craft it into a piece of furniture. The the sculptor must take the lump of clay, and he must mold it into a vessel of honor prepared for something that is precious to be placed in it. Calvin stated, in regard to this text of verse 10. In the context of it, he explains this, and he says that this is the meaning. When he says that we are the work of God, this does not refer to ordinary creation by which men are, which we are made men. We are declared to be new creatures because not by our own power, But by the Spirit of Christ, we have been formed to righteousness. This applies to none, to no one, he says, but believers. As the descendants of Adam, they are wicked and depraved, but by the grace of Christ, they are spiritually renewed and become new men. Born again. Everything in us, therefore, Calvin says, that is good. Everything in us that is good is the supernatural gift of God. We are His work. Because we have been created, not in Adam, but in Christ Jesus. Not to every kind of life, Calvin says, but to good works. It is by union to Him, that is, union to Christ, and His substitutionary work on our behalf. God the Father has given us to Christ, placed us in Him as our new federal head, the second Adam, the last Adam, if you will, whereby we are created anew, born again in Him. 
made into new creatures, given new life, a new spirit put within us, born again to a living hope with a living Savior as our head, raised to newness of life in Him. And Paul says, two good works. Now here we get to the rub, right? Now we arrive at that which we so often shy away from, out of fear of being either on one end of the spectrum or the other, antinomian or legalist. This goes back to another why issue, does it not? Why did God create us anew? Why are we His workmanship? Why are we, as Hendrickson puts it, His handiwork? Paul does not shy away from this, and neither should we, so far as we give the subject, as Paul did, its proper place. The proper place of works makes all the difference in the world. You will notice that there is a difference in the way Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, how he describes works. He first tells us what we saw last week. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Then in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Before salvation, there is no good work. None. No working that can be done that is good in God's eyes. They are not good works. Let me ask, why are they not good works? And the answer is, they are not good works because they don't flow out of a new creation in Christ Jesus. Those who are not born again are unable to please God the Father because they are outside of the one in whom God is altogether and singularly pleased. Christ. They are not good works because they, sinful man, are not in Christ Jesus. Psalm 53, 1-3 says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from the heaven, from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have been corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. No good in fallen and corrupt men. But you might ask, doesn't even fallen men do some things that are good? Doesn't Jesus and Matthew and Luke even state that earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children? Well, certainly there are members of the lost and fallen race that do things that we might refer to as relatively good. But it's altogether different when God looks at those works. R.C. Sproul tells a story as a way of illustration on this. He, he talks about a man who liked to drive his car 55 miles an hour. And he always drove it because he liked to drive 55 miles an hour. 
He'd get on the freeway, 55 mile an hour speed limit. People would just go flying by him, 65, 70 or faster. He'd stay right at 55. And a police officer actually called him in and gave him a, a commendation, gave him a, a, um, uh, a public safety award, safe driver award. And that's a good thing, right? Driving the speed limit's a good thing. But he, in the story he tells, he says, well, the man left from getting his award, walked out the door, got in his car, turned his car on, started driving 55 miles an hour right through a school zone. Because he liked to drive 55 miles an hour. That was comfortable to him. Right? Sproul says it didn't come from a desire to obey the laws of society or those who made the laws. It just happened that now and then he adhered to the law when he was going through someplace that the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. And that his adherence to the law was accidental, not intentional. You see what Sproul is getting at here? You see, we, we have a God that looks not on the outward, but a God who looks at the heart. That police officer who gave him the award saw him on the freeway every day driving the speed limit, looked upon what was the outward working of what this man was doing. God looks at the heart. He sees what the intention is. What is the motivation what is your reason for doing these things? We have a God who we read just a minute ago looks at the heart, and the heart is desperately wicked. It is set at opposition to God. It is at enmity to God. It is a heart that must be replaced. It must be replaced if there is to be found any way of doing anything with right motive or desire. Once again, we find ourselves making reference back to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, And I will give you a new heart. God speaking through His prophet, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, that old dead heart. I'll remove the heart of stone, and I will give, your, give, uh, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to what he says. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. God giving life and creating this new work. His workmanship is what enables the Christian by their union to Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to walk in His statutes and to desire to walk according to them. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Until we are made anew, we will never, ever love the statutes of God. Won't do it. Rebel against Him. Set yourself in opposition to Him. You will never in your flesh love the commandments, the rules, the law of God. Look at me. Look, look with me at Psalm 1. Psalm 1. 
verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Listen, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Did you see here that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord? He meditates on it 24-7. He can't get it out of his mind. He loves the law of the Lord. This is only that which comes from conversion. Never find it any other way. Never have it any other way. It comes from conversion, from regeneration. Otherwise, it's a completely foreign concept to the heart of a man in their sin. And the man in sin hates God and he hates his law. Wants nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. He'll suppress it. Look at Romans 1. Knows there's a God, but suppresses that knowledge. Rebellion against Creator. Think about this from Psalm 1. Who is it that this statement finds its ultimate fulfillment in? Loves the law. Meditates in it, on it day and night. Who is it that we can say has fully lived this way? Whose good work was holy to please the Father and delight in what the Father had sent Him to do? Is it not Christ? Is it not Christ Jesus that says to us that He has accomplished all in John 17? Father, I've accomplished all that You've sent me forth to do. Every bit of it done it I've kept it all fulfilled it all done it all is it any wonder that God we read in so many different ways in Ephesians 1 or 2 that God placed us in Him in Christ we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Did He not tell us that Himself? John 15, 4-5 Abide in Me, and I in you, as the branch cannot, cannot, listen, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Can't do it. Unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from being in Christ, apart from being united to him, Apart from abiding in Him, we cannot do anything that is pleasing to God. We cannot bear fruit. It comes from Him. He's the source. He's the power. Even 
in these things. Paul says we were created in Christ. These good works are not possible in any way, shape, or form unless we are united to Christ. That's why we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. They are fruit which is born of, by, and through Him. This is why the work spoken of in verse 9, these works proceeding from the heart of fallen man can never bring about salvation. Can't even call them good works. Works cannot bring about salvation. They are not in any way meritorious. They have no saving value. There is no merit to our works that would bring us to a right standing with God. Even if we could do all that was our duty, Scripture tells us. If, if we could do it, if we could do everything that was our duty and do it right, we would still be what? Unprofitable servants. Well, what does, what does Scripture mean when it says that we would still be unprofitable servants? It means that there is no work inherent in us that could bring us into reconciliation with the Father. We are not saved by our works. If we did all that, that would just simply be our duty. It wouldn't be anything that would have saving effect on us. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Christ's work. We are saved by works, but we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Made alive in Him. We are made to be bearing fruit. We're created in Him that we might bear fruit, that we might be for good works because we abide in the one who has already accomplished all things by his working and by what he has done. So what are these good works? I would suggest to you that they are fruits born of the Spirit which are pleasing to God through the work and the union that we have as believers to the Son. God looking at this fruit through the fact that we are united to His glorious and righteous Son in whom we have been created. Galatians 5, we read this before our uh, service, uh, during our Scripture reading, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Do you see the difference here? 
there are two different types of fruit. There is fruit that is born of the flesh, and there is fruit that is born of the Spirit. The fruits of the flesh are repugnant to God. They're a foul odor in His nostrils. They're a stench to Him. He despises fruits of the flesh. They're opposed to all that is holy and right. This is what comes from the flesh. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you think you're going to get to God by your works? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't think anybody can make it any clearer than that. But look at what Paul in Romans then says. In Romans 8, 9, You, however, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God, he goes on in that passage to call it the Spirit of Christ. If you are in the Spirit, look at the fruits that is produced. Fruits pleasing to the Father. Fruit made possible by being united to Christ. Fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit who now dwells in these new creatures. These new crea- this new creation. These who Ephesians tells us are His workmanship. Fruit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. In fact, there is no law against them because these things are done in the Spirit of God through Christ our Lord and they are pleasing to God the Father. Of course, there's no law against them. They bring honor to God because they're born of the Spirit through making us alive in Christ. Well, these good works are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Paul tells us. We'll touch on this very briefly because our time is already growing short. But uh, God has marked out by the work of His providence and His purposes the work which He will set before us. The time for these things and the way of these things for His own purpose and His own glory. These good works. He, in His sovereign, omniscient plan, makes ready all that must come to place for the opportunity for these works, and also makes ready and provides for us the means and the conditions for their performance. He has given us this work, prepared it beforehand, by His own wise counsel and placed us in Christ, made us alive and given us His Spirit to accomplish these things for His glory and for His honor. This is to say that we in our own strength are not capable of even this, but are only capable in that we have been, as one commentator put it, formed and adapted by the hand of God. For these things. We still are not sufficient in ourselves for these things. 
the grace of God, having already been poured out to us in such a way that these things, these good works, are not even grounds on which we can boast. We can't even boast of the good works after redemption has come, after we have been justified, after salvation has come to us. We still can't boast of these things. But yet, furthermore, we find them to increase our boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we once again find that we are debtors to all persons of the Godhead for these things. God the Father for preparing them, Jesus Christ in whom we have been made alive, and the Spirit who resides in us with His power to enable us to do these things. Paul, I think, best puts it like he puts it in Colossians 1, 29. He says, for this I toil. He said, I worked. Toil, not just worked, I worked hard. I worked a long time, tirelessly worked, beat down in my work. For this I toiled, struggling with all His energy, which He powerfully works within me. Do you see the difference? Paul worked. He did. But he worked with all God's energy, the Spirit's energy that resided within him. Yes, it's Paul's responsibility to do that which God has placed before him. And he says, I toil, I labor, but it's his energy. He says in Ephesians 3.20, we'll get to one of these days, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to what? According to the power at work within us. It's his power. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, He says, I worked harder than any of them. I outworked them all. I labored more abundantly. Persecuted more abundantly. I worked harder Though it was not I, Paul says. It wasn't me. Although it was not I, but the grace of God that is is within me. All these things that we may cry out louder from every high place, not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be given glory. What then is the purpose of good works? The purpose of good works is not to perfect us or to merit anything in us apart from Christ and His work. That is not the purpose of good works. But there are several things that I think are worthy of seeing regarding the importance and usefulness of these good works. We will mention them briefly in closing. Uh, And these are expounded in much greater detail in both the 1689 Baptist Confession and in the Westminster, the Westminster Confession of Faith that our brothers and sisters from the Presbyterian uh, persuasion, uh, very, very similar to the 1689 Baptist in most respects. 
But um, there are expositions that are written on these two confessions, and they go into great detail on these. But by good works, believers manifest their thankfulness to God. Psalm 116, 12 through 13 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? The psalmist asked that question What shall I render? To the Lord for all these benefits. I will lift up the cup of, my, of, of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will praise Him, the psalmist says, for all these great benefits, all these great blessings. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of of lips that acknowledge His name. Secondly, believers may strengthen their assurance. 1 John 2.3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. We know that we love Him because we seek to do what is pleasing to Him. John, 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And 2 Peter 1, 5-10 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election Election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Third place, they edify the brethren. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to, the Father, to your Father who is in heaven. Fourth, they adorn the profession of the gospel. 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Whatever state you find yourself in, whether you're under someone who is just the most troublesome, quarrelsome boss, whether you find yourself in relationships with people that they don't want anything to do with the gospel, think about this verse. That let all who are under a yoke as bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Matthew five thirteen through 16 you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. You're created in Christ Jesus so that you can be a light to the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to the whole house, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is really where the rubber meets the road in bringing glory to God. If a man professed Christ and lives as a rebel to God, he tarnishes the gospel and throws mud on the glory of God. This is so often the case in the professing church that we see today. Men see no difference in the one who professes Jesus Christ and the drunken person down at the bar living a life of sin. They see no visible difference. If the professing Christian is no different, is not a real new creation, then I fear that there is no true faith which apprehended the gospel that we read about here, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Which in turn leads to what Paul is telling about here in the epistle. The true Christian is a new creation. There's true regeneration that's taken place. True faith, enabled and empowered unto good works by which they might proclaim the truth of the gospel message and be a witness to all those around them of this life-giving, transforming work of God that makes dead, lost, sinful people, all those things that we read about, the fruits of the flesh, right? And can turn them, can make them into a new creation that can exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Another thing about good works in its proper place is it may stop the mouths of our adversaries. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And again, in 1 Peter 3.1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How precious is it? What a display of the power of God in the work of regeneration that the, even the mouths of our adversaries, our enemies, would be shut when they see the way that the Spirit enables Christians who are new creation, a new creation, new creatures to live in the Spirit. Some might even be led to know and trust 
in our Savior. Lastly, and most importantly, these things, these good works created in Christ Jesus for good works, enabled and empowered to these good works by the power of the Holy Spirit, not of us, but these things may bring about the ultimate purpose in all things, which is the glory of God. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Fruits of the Spirit. Fruit of the righteousness that is not inherent in us, but that is given to us, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The fruits of that righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, Paul says to the letter in Philippians, to the glory and the praise of God. And once again, back to a passage that we looked at previously, Matthew 5, 16, where Christ himself says to his listeners, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to us, but glory to God who is in heaven. Created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which He, God the Father, has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, that we would by our actions and all that we do to be found unto the glory of God with thankful hearts to be able to point to Him and say, not to us. Oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Our lives should be lived in such a way that we bring glory to God. And it's only through the gift of his son, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that this is even a possibility, but it's still our responsibility to live our lives in such a way that would point others to the cross of Christ. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the truth that we find in it. Lord, sometimes hard to understand, sometimes hard to, uh, to work out. Lord, but we thank you that you have also given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, to teach us, to be the one who instructs us using your word, the revelation of who you are, who we are, what you've done on our behalf. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would work mightily in us, that we would have wisdom and discernment in looking into your word. Lord, that we might be built up upon it, that it might be our foundation, that we might grow strong in your word. Lord, that we might live our lives to your glory and to your honor in all that you've prepared for us to encounter, to go through. Lord, that we might work with all your energy, that you might receive all the glory and all the honor. In your name we pray, amen.